Well, thousands of white supremacists are reportedly gathering online to target protesters with Black Lives Matter. And as CNN's Demma Albigar tells us, they're using the encrypted messenger app, Telegram. Once seen as the jihadi extremist social media platform of choice, now it appears to be that it's white supremacists who are exploiting laxity on the part of the encrypted messaging app Telegram. For years, Telegram came under public and governmental pressure to tighten up their protocols when it came to beheadings and ISIS videos on public channels on their app. And they did for a time. Now, though, a new report from the Institute of Strategic Dialogue shared exclusively with CNN has identified 200 white supremacist groups using the app to spread their message of hate, and not just hate, but also to plan and act on their rhetoric. One of the key authors of this report, Jacob Gold, told us this is incredibly, incredibly concerning. From our perspective, um, we're very concerned about these channels. There's, like, we identified 200 channels with up to over, to, some of the biggest with over uh, 10,000 adherents. Uh, there will be overlaps almost certainly, but that, that's a large enough scale of content and followers uh, that are part of this, this network that's, that's sort of aimed towards um, creating violence. And Hello everyone, welcome to Wetwired, episode 17, Telegram Extremism with Martin Rook. I'm Sean Andes. And I'm Julian Paul Butt. So like I said, today we're here with Martin Rook. Martin is a research fellow at the Shorenstein Center on Media, Politics, and Public Policy at Harvard Kennedy School, where he studies media manipulation. And he also writes at a substack called Echoes from the Right. So Martin, you work at the Technology and Social Change Project. Could you tell us a little bit about what you do there and what the what that project is about? Uh, yep. Yeah. So I'm a I'm a research fellow. I've been on a nine month contract over the past nine months. I've been quite specifically looking at uh, misinformation and and sort of radical misinformation networks on on Telegram. Um, that's just one part of the uh, the wider project goals. Um, the real big focus of of the project has been uh, sort of our media manipulation casebook. Um, one of the big outputs have has been uh, a, a way to uh, categorise and, and uh, classify uh, different phases of the media manipulation cycle, um, which can be seen uh, from uh, pressure groups to, to, to uh, other sort of organisations, how they utilise misinformation uh, in order to, to affect uh, change within the, the political discourse. And, and so today we're specifically going to be talking about Telegram because that's what you and I have been talking about and the project that you're working on. So tell me if I, you know, like if I get some of the specifics wrong. Your project is focused on specifically how Telegram is uh, being used by far right extremists and how they're, you know, to be able to spread their message, uh, you know, just across multiple Telegram channels. Yeah, uh, very, very much so. Um 
one of the, the the big bits of data that, that I was able to generate uh, looking through our, uh, our research tool using t- uh, Telegram's API is that in 2021, uh, there was 11 billion views of content um, or um, posts within this uh, far right Telegram network uh, between 2017 uh, up to 2020, that there was only 2 billion views of, of posts in this network. Uh, this network was developed using a, a select number of uh, seed uh, accounts to begin with through different iterative uh, approaches. I built it up to about 600 uh, of these sort of central nodes, if you want. Through these nodes, you can see different domains and different sort of sub-networks within this larger uh, far-right network. But one of the big things I was uh, really trying to do was just keep it contained uh, to the, the sort of very central influences and, and uh, people really putting out the messaging rather than making it very broad and capturing absolutely everyone who's who's on um, Telegram. So it's very specific to this far right misinformation network. So what, I was thinking that, uh, you know, before we uh, we talk more about your project and, and, and get into some details about some of the specific things that you found, that it would be helpful for everybody listening to hear some background about how Telegram was founded and how it's been used up until the point and maybe like idealistically what its original purpose might have been versus what's happening on it now. Yep. Since its founding in 2013 by the brothers Pavel and Nikolai Durov, Telegram has grown its worldwide base to over 700 million active users who send billions of messages every day. Pavel Durov made headlines worldwide in 2011 for his first company, the Russian-based social media network VKontakte, or VK, when he refused to take down the account for the Russian politician Alexei Navalny. At the time, Navalny was at the center of public outcry over accusations of various types of fraud surrounding the 2011 Russian Duma elections. So obviously, the story of Alexei Navalny is a very long story. Uh, And at the time, Putin wanted Pavel Durov to take down Navalny's account on VK. Navalny was a leading voice accusing United Russia, which was Putin's and Dmitry Medvedev political party, of tampering with that election. Navalny ended up getting jailed that same year for 15 days for, quote, defying a government official. And of course, Navalny was famously later poisoned in 2020 with Novichok. And when he didn't die, he was imprisoned in Russia on a variety of charges, including probation violations and fraud. Since then, he's been designated as an extremist. And collectively, the sentences amount to Navalny staying in prison for dozens of years. And definitely, Martin, you can jump in whenever you want. This isn't something where you have to just wait for me to finish. If you have a comment to make or something, like feel free to jump in. And, and Oh, no, no, no. You're, 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 you're covering it very well. There's, there's no need for me. <laughs> That same political climate in Russia probably made Pavel Durov extremely nervous. And in 2013, he sold all of his shares in VK to a pro-Putin business partner, but stayed on as the CEO. That was just months before Russian authorities demanded access to personal data for the accounts of Ukrainian leaders opposing Russia's 2014 invasion of Ukraine. Durov refused and was then fired as CEO of VK. So with just the clothes on their backs and $300 million in a Swiss bank account, the Durov brothers left Russia for the open road. <laughs> Durov's experience with Russian officials was very likely the impetus for their next project, Telegram, which he and his brother designed to be an instant messaging platform built around an end-to-end encrypted messaging service. 
According to them, it all started as a side project with an encrypted messaging app that the brothers built so that they could personally chat without Russian security forces listening in. And if we look back to the early 2010s, this is a time when encryption was the was the buzzword in all of the tech circles. Everybody was talking about encryption. I mean, there and there were a number of reasons for this. There were increasing privacy invasions by oppressive governments. And in 2013, of course, that's when Edward Snowden revealed the extent of the United States' uh, NSA electronic surveillance programs. And that all came to a boil around 2016. Yeah. And, and also around that time, you, you, you had a real big focus on this idea. Or slightly just before then was this big focus on the idea of citizen journalism and this idea that anyone can can uh, hold power to account. You don't need to be a uh, well-established journalist. Um, and that was quite a lot of the, the sort of milieu at the time that really underpinned uh, a lot of these free speech platforms, if, if you want. Absolutely. Yeah. And I mean, going back, I mean, you had you had the rise of websites like Alternet and things like that, where you could just put things up there. And, you know, the there at one point there was something a little bit earlier than the 2010s, I think, called the Guerrilla News Network. GNN. And that was where everybody just had a blog. And I mean, except you weren't you weren't really blogging. You were a citizen journalist, like you say. Yeah. And then obviously you had Tor browser. Yeah, and then Tor a lot, and Tor became very popular in the same time period. And you know, people started learning what VPNs were, and you know, there was a lot of things that were getting deployed to circumvent some of the surveillance. It, it, tools. It's almost several decades after that period of time in the '90s when there was this sense, or I think it was part of the zeitgeist, that we uh, we had this opportunity to have uh, a. a New liberation through technology, a new a new sense of being able to communicate freely and this sort of anti-authoritarian or at least uh, anti-establishmentarian mindset. And uh, there was a real concern, I think, at that time about security and about the ability to communicate uh, in, a, in a meaningful way without anybody snooping in or being able to access what you're saying. And I feel like the zeitgeist drifted away from that in the 2000s for for a good long while and this almost has a lot of that same kind of flavor from the cyberpunk late 90s yeah i mean those people were still around <laughs> yeah i don't think we can we can avoid connecting it to this uh you know the california ideology as well when it comes to the the role of government in relation to the internet in general and tech and and these and silicon valley tech companies they really believe that they were setting their own rules for these things and so we end up with some really probably noble motives mixed in with some uh, some very uh, not so obvious ideology sometimes well, even then it wasn't wasn't just confined to silicon valley this idea that the the internet can, uh, or, or rather through the internet, people can radically change systems. Uh, in the UK, and, and one of my published articles was, was on this, uh, we had a massive problem with how science and, and health and environmental risks were being reported in the British press. Um, it was a sense that 
they, the, the mainstream journalists, uh, were leaning too far or too heavily into unsubstantiated reporting. And there was a big sense that something drastic really needed to happen. It really needs to be a big change and a, a sort of self-regulation within the industry. Uh, what happened then was you had uh, Dr. Ben Goldacre, who just created his blog on, on WordPress called Bad Side been another thing but it was called bad science and what he was doing was taking examples of uh sort of misreporting around science issues and he was just pumping it out on his on his uh, blog naming and shaming journalists who were doing it badly and it it kicked up such a stink within journalism that, or within the British press that the Guardian actually brought him on as a syndicated columnist to keep doing this because it was having a direct impact on how uh, these journalists approach science writing at the time. And I've interviewed quite a, quite a number of them um, and they said, yeah, Ben Goldacre, he, he, he changed it. He, he took the piss out. It's, he took the mickey out of us. Uh, and then he also told us what we were doing wrong in those columns and on his blog. Yeah, and exactly, you know, and this and that attitude is, you know, those are direct, those people are direct precursors to these watchdog accounts that you find on Twitter now, like bad stats that, you know, go through and, and debunk really sketchy medical claims specifically around COVID vaccines. There, there's a number of these accounts that are that are focused narrowly on one particular area or another where they're, you know, they, they see it as their, their role to write all of the misunderstandings that are being put out. You know, I mean, it's and it's not just misunderstandings. A lot of times it's blatant misinformation and it's attached to people with some sort of a financial motive where they're they're trying to sell, you know, something like the miracle mineral cure or <laughs> silver solutions. There's always a financial motive somewhere in it. Yeah. Yeah. There almost always Coil is. Silver. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> that, that that ethos sort of died away going into the into the, the, the 2010s. Um and I think that one of the big problems was uh there, there was a sense that 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 we, whoever we are, had had beaten misinformation out into some dark corner of of of, of anywhere or nowhere. Um, but then, yeah, circa 2015, 2014, um, we see Gamergate hitting the hitting the the, the hitting YouTube basically, um, and that really drew drew attention to this sense of actually there is a major socio political issue going on in the broadly speaking, the right sphere uh, of, of politics or political discussion, if you want. Um, and, and over time, it was a sense of, well, we really can't be having uh, some of the more extreme conversations that, that are taking place within this sphere. We need to start moderating the content that's on these platforms, uh, platforms like YouTube, Twitter and, and, and Facebook, in order to mitigate some of the, uh, the, the, the potential harms of this. But what that may have done, and, and at least what some of my data suggests, is that it has encouraged these these people, rather than driving them off the internet completely, more, the, the sort of more radical fringe uh, uh, extremists, rather than driving them off the internet completely, uh, it has pushed them towards different platforms that offer greater levels of, of privacy and security, and just allowing them to skate under the radar just enough that they can continue making their content and also continue some sense of financial uh, income um, through through producing their, their their content. And Telegram is uh, one of the one of the more uh, prominent ones at the moment. Um, one of the one of the big reasons why Telegram has become so popular is because it's 
very much a hybrid platform. Um, when we talk about social media, everyone sort of tends to think of Twitter or, 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 te- or Twitter or Facebook, but Telegram operates a little bit more like WhatsApp, just with uh, sort of retweeting functions, if you want. They, they call it reposting. Um, so that allows a sense of more authentic curation of the content. It's a bit like uh, if you live in a if you live in a big city, you know, there's tons of bars about. You don't know what bar to go to on any given night. So you choose one. You choose a bar. You go to a bar. You're sitting in a bar. You might like it. You hear someone talking about another bar down the road. that has got a band on that you might like. So you go check out that bar. And then you just slowly start building yourself into this this community of, of bar hoppers, if you want, or into a music scene or into a coffee scene or into all of these different little scenes. Um, you're doing that on Telegram, but with information, misinformation, conspiratorial stuff, uh, depending on, on what your particular flavor is. So this Telegram story isn't as simple as being as it being the app that protects its users from privacy invasions. In 2015, at least 10 gunmen aligned with ISIS attacked people in the streets of Paris, killing 129. Investigations later found that they had plotted this attack for months. At least some of the planning took place on Telegram. Pavel Durov, a self-described libertarian, is also adamantly anti-censorship. That attitude is baked into how Telegram functions. After the Paris attack, Durov removed 78 ISIS channels from Telegram, but also said, according to an interview in Fortune, that it's technically impossible to remove them from the encrypted parts of the platform, since Telegram does not read private information and messages. You know, as we were talking about before, that, you know, Durov really wants this wide open messaging tool and really doesn't have, doesn't really execute much oversight whatsoever with the exception of terms of service violations, which include bans on calls to violence. Yeah, yeah. Uh, in Telegram's um, privacy policy, they, they quite explicitly say that they will not turn over uh, messages to law enforcement agencies unless a specific charge of terrorism is, is brought against an individual. Then then they'll do that. Um, and that has that has caused some, some major problems. Um, I believe it was maybe a year or two ago, there was a, a big kerfuffle within uh, the furry community when uh, several members of the, the, the more popular uh, furry YouTube creators were caught up in a sort of zoophilia uh, or, or animal abuse ring. Um, and they were trading uh, images and messages between one another using Telegram. Um, so it's not just issues on, on the right. There are issues everywhere with Telegram. Um, and it is relatively under uh, un- under research within academia. There was a um, a, a conference uh, a couple of months back, and I think there was only about four papers that were looking at Telegram. The rest of them were still on uh, Twitter and Facebook, which is understandable because everyone's there. But it does seem that the privacy policy of Telegram is uh, attracting very extreme elements of, of society. You know, it is understandable because, you know, to have so much of that attention focused on on platforms like Facebook and Twitter and, and also Instagram, which is also just Facebook, you know, because they are so popular. But that's that is quickly changing. And, you know, obviously, TikTok has has taken a lot of uh, a lot of the, the, you know, the screen time away that was previously devoted to those other platforms uh, for itself. But in the last two quarters, Telegram has either been the either the number one or the number two most downloaded app in the uh, between Apple and Google app stores. You know, so it, it, it's growing quickly. 
Oh, yeah, yeah. And uh, when you look at the number of new channels in this far right uh, Telegram network, um, by the end of 2021, there was about 5,000 channels uh, from these 600 central nodes. So there's 5,000 channels in this network and a, a large number of them came to the network following January 6th. Um, it, it, January 6th just, just absolutely spiked interest in, in Telegram um, because people wanted to, to discuss it and didn't feel comfortable doing it on, on uh, Twitter or Facebook. They wanted somewhere to go and they, they went to, to Telegram. Um, I think another thing, uh, another aspect of it is, is this sense of um, Web 3.0 coming in and just where primarily older internet users are now feeling a lot more comfortable using other different and alternative social media platforms. Whereas Web 2.0, the idea was to load everyone onto Twitter, YouTube, uh, Facebook, the, the, the sort of big ones. It's now getting to the point that those older internet users far more confident in themselves are going, I'm going to check out Telegram. I'm going to do this rather than just, just being able to scroll through Minion. Even speaking of, of older internet users, it, the Telegram really reminds me of a, a blend of AIM, uh, AOL Instant Messenger, and the chat rooms from also AOL at the time. I, I mean, this is this is like early 2000s or so, but it, it really does have that same kind of a feel where it's not, it's not going to be so delivered by the algorithm like some of these other ones, but it really does feel like you're also dropping in to a place where plenty of creeps are hanging out in a lot of these different forums and a lot of these different channels. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, not just not just on on Telegram. If you think about how big uh, live streaming has become on on YouTube and, and Twitch, for example, and a big part of that is the uh, is the chat function, which is as you said, very very similar to uh, the the instant messaging of of uh, AIM and and things like that back in the back in the early two thousands. So we're moving towards uh, more immediate text. Communication. We've sort of moved away from that as uh, as Web 2.0 went on, and we sort of went into you know curated comment sections and just comment sections in general, much slower. Um, and we're now moving back towards more instant messaging, which is something that that Telegram offers. But the other side of it is, as I said, you are able to repost. Uh, in your channel that, that you own, you're able to repost material from another channel's chat, if you fancy. Uh, so, so let's say Sean, you had a Telegram, and Jules, you had a Telegram. Your your, your each individual audience uh, would see exactly what you posted in there. But if Sean, you decided to repost stuff from Jules, then your audience, Sean, will be able to see what content you put in and Jules, let's say you repost nothing from Sean, then your audience is only seeing yours. And that's just with two people. So again, if you start abstracting that out fractally to, to all the different combinations that could go on within a network, it's absolutely maddening to think just how much content is getting shared and reshared. The other thing that, that Telegram offers 
that no other social media really does is you get a views metric for your content. So even your your sort of first morning message, you know, good morning world, I've just had a coffee. You can see how many people actually view that. Not not just the people who like it, not just the people who share it, or the people who comment on it, just simply looking at it, which will gamify Telegram. It will encourage people to start looking at new ways to, to capitalize on how many views they can get. Even if they don't make money from it, there's still that feedback loop of, I posted something, it's getting views. I'm getting views from what I'm doing. This is great. Yeah, I mean, there's there, exactly there's that there's that that social benefit and that dopamine rush that you get from knowing that you know whatever whatever thing you just sent out there, no matter you know how how absent minded or how curated it was, it was it was seen by you know potentially thousands of people. Yeah, and definitely if what you post gets picked up by a, a bigger channel. Uh, when I was looking into. Um, into the uh, far right network sort of around the, the invasion of Ukraine. Uh, one thing I noticed was that you had uh, three news channels, if, if you want, uh, Bellamacta, Intel Slava Z, uh, and CIG uh, Intel or something like that. And those three had very much made uh, a, a connection between each other. So they were reposting each other's content and they were very much, we are the core of information um, about Ukraine from a reasonably pro-Russian or at least anti-Ukrainian perspective. Um, and they were getting a lot of views. Yeah, I've, I've, I've followed some of those channels myself on Telegram to, to see what they've been talking about. And it is it, it, it really is a place where, you know, because there isn't any there is no real community standard of oversight for for misinformation, everything gets a chance to flourish. And it's just a matter of whether or not it catches an audience. You know, that's the only thing that determines it. There's nothing there's nothing built in that's going to limit its reach. Yeah. And that's what the the audience want, if, if you fancy. Um, we. We see it time and time again in a lot of the rhetoric that's that's going around that people are really searching for this sense of authentic news, um, authentic information, information that hasn't gone through a newsroom, that hasn't been produced uh, under the consideration of what advertisers might think, new uh, information that hasn't been produced out of fear of what the legal department might say. Um, it's going back to that sense of citizen journalism, the sense of this is what is really happening. Um, um, but there are big concerns that actually actors on the ground or, or actors up until that information get published are manipulating it. They are finding those very resonant cultural values to hit on. Uh, and that is what's encouraging those channels to start producing that information. If not so, that the information is also just, just reaffirming what the community or what their little community, that little networked group uh, already believe. Yeah, and and really, what is really happening is whatever somebody says is happening. There, there, there's no, there's, there's no, there's nobody there. I mean, to to do all these things that are considered antiquated by 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 these groups of people, like like editorial oversight or fact checking or you know, conf confirming sources or anything like that. It's just simply whatever somebody says is going on. That's the thing that that gets passed off as what's really happening. Yeah, and the the sort of general approach 
tends to be, well, the mainstream media doesn't really do that anyway. They, right, they don't yeah. really fact check. They just do what the scientists sort of say or, or, or do what they generally agree upon. There is no real uh, verification of the sources. So if those professional journalists don't do it, then why should I, as a, a person sitting in their bedroom with a, with a big telegram channel, have to do these things. Uh, I'm combating mainstream media misinformation by publishing my authentically curated uh, stream of, of <laughs> well, I was going to say facts, but stream of information. Or stream of consciousness, probably. Stream, stream of something. <laughs> and, yeah. <laughs> and, and, and we saw this play out just yet over the past two days with the, with the Romana Didolo, the Queen of Canada, sending her followers to go uh, execute citizens arrests of police officers. And, you know, this is the, like that, that whole thing was, you know, she ginned up that entire scenario over the past year or so tell talking about how illegitimate the police forces and that, that, that Justin Trudeau is not actually in charge of Canada anymore <laughs> and that she's been placed in charge by somebody and the U S special forces are helping her and, you know, what ended up happening is, uh, you know, they showed up, they caused a ruckus, a few of them got arrested, and now that's all going to get spun into something new. You know, that's going to be, there's a reason why they didn't uh, acknowledge her authority, and now they're going to be executed. Uh, even with journalists, you'll, you'll see in major publications, New York Times, Washington Post, so forth, that they'll issue retractions or they'll, they'll issue corrections and that sort of a thing. But... In the cases of the professional journalists, if you will, they the retractions are irrelevant because the information's already out there. In the occasion they actually do corrections and retractions and things like that, it's almost like a a footnote at the end of it next week. But even those are emblematic of the issue with how this information is spreading. I think, which is that once it's already out and spreading and catching on it's irrelevant whether it's true or not because it's spread it, it is has made its impact it's already done the damage so that any corrections or or uh uh anything like that is is already yeah. is a moot point that nobody reads or is interested in yeah and to to that point as well um people aren't aren't stupid um you know, they people will see, uh, you know, a, a headline gets retracted maybe a, a, a three days or a week down the line and they'll go, well, hang on. Did the journalist know that this was a, a false headline uh, or, or there was false information in it or that it needed to be retracted? If so, why was it published? Why did they did they decide that it needs to go out there? Who is behind the curtain giving them the nod to say that's the story that you should you should put out there? Um, and so, it, it, in a way, it's understandable where you get people who are growing increasingly disillusioned with with the mainstream media, and they will start looking for alternative uh, alternative networks. Uh, I mean, big case in point, uh, you know. I can't say I'm the biggest fan of Donald Trump, but I remember that the mainstream media uh, really questioning Trump's mental uh, capacity to, to, to run as president. Um, 
fair enough. People are entitled to that opinion. But then when Joe Biden comes in and, you know, people on the right say, well, hang on, we have questions about his mental competency. There's very little sort of agreement that, well, yes, we were the people who were questioning mental competency. And now we're not going to talk about Joe Biden. So you will get people who go, well, hang on, I see something's going on there. I don't quite know what it is. I'm going to go search for other information. Where can I go? I can't go to Twitter because people are getting kicked off. I can't go to Facebook because people are getting kicked off. Telegram, that seems to be the the, the, the space. And the thing is, we learned from, from Gamergate what happens when platforms decide they really want to crack down on, on uh, conversations and discourse. Because, yes, there was some misogynistic elements behind Gamergate, but the whole thing really kicked off because... The, the, the video gamers felt that there was corruption within the uh, indie video game scene and uh, the uh, sort of industry press, if you want. Uh, there was a sex scandal, all the sort of tabloid stuff that people like to talk about. I mean, I'm from the UK. We do tabloid journalism annoyingly right. well. Um, you set the standard about. worldwide, I think. It's not a great standard, but yeah, we, we do. Um but so people like talking about these things and places like Reddit said, no, you're not going to talk about it on our platform. So people went, fine, we'll talk about it on YouTube. YouTube will let us do that. And it absolutely took off. Yeah, simply because it was it was being silenced and that that added this extra energy to it that, you know, and, and the, you know, the QAnon people have have an expression for this when whenever there is an there's a backlash for a particular talking point. They 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 you know they see that as evidence that they're quote over the target because if they if they weren't so accurate then they wouldn't be getting the kind of resistance they're experiencing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and very so, much it, so. It, it it becomes this sort of you know this feedback loop that the the you know the wild, the more outlandish things are the more you know the more resistance is coming from the the sort of you know wider people who are exposed to those ideas but don't subscribe to them. And then that just emboldens them. They, you know, they think that that just makes them, you know, that that's verification that they're that they're actually correct. Yeah. Um, and sort of my <clears throat> real big concern is the sense that, that places like Telegram can very easily be used to, to radicalize people. Um, mm -hmm. I'm, not, I'm not saying radicalize to, to violence, um, although that is definitely a possibility, but more so a sense of, OK, you, you've got, you know, someone who is is very concerned about all the things we've we've just discussed and they they want to go looking for an alternative uh media source so they they start finding a couple of channels on on youtube uh, on on telegram and you know they, they quite like what's going on there but there's always within these these far right networks a sense of of uh rel uh revelatory discovery a sense of there's always an extra curtain behind the scenes to to go beyond um so whereas you know you, you might start off with quite reasonable concerns about joe biden uh, you then start getting into hunter biden you then start getting into other things well who's behind hunter biden who's behind that person um and before you know it, yeah, you're very much ending at anti-Semitic uh, tropes that the Jews of the New World Order are trying to suppress the Goyim. It always goes there. <laughs> you, 
You can't, you, it's Always. like no matter you're, 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 it's a sort of, you know, a variation of the six degrees away from Kevin Bacon is that you're, you're six degrees away from anti-Semitism with any one of these spirit conspiracy theories. Yeah. You follow yeah. it. You, you follow it through a couple of its, of, of steps and it, it always gets back to the Rothschilds or the new world order. Yeah. But rather than, uh, sort of. I say dismissing those 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 concerns as you know fringe, just just radical theories. I this is where my, my background in, in risk research really does sort of touch on the the social political element of those theories because the whole thing is based around a narrative that says, hey, white folk, Americans, Westerners, whatever iteration that you want, you are uh, currently being attacked. You are at risk. There is a, a neoliberal cabal. There is a neoliberal social order that has decided that it is done away with whiteness, maleness, Americanness, however you want. Um, we over here, we are offering uh, a safety net. We are offering security. All you have to do is listen to us. We're going to tell you who the bad guys are, why they're doing what they're doing, how they're doing it, and how to resist it. And that is something that's very much coming through with what I'm seeing in these posts. It's the sense that, that you as white folk are under attack We've got the answers. Uh, it's always behind one more curtain, um, but we're also going to tell you how to survive the end days. And crucially, it always comes from a, a point of view of not only are you smart enough to be listening to us, uh, us, the conspiracy person in, in this in this context, uh, you're smart enough to be listening to us. You're not tricked. You're not deceived. All these other sheeple. Are, are deceived and they're and they're fools, but you're not a fool because you're listening to us and you get access to this special information. Oh, and also 10% off of my uh, bunker kit. Yeah, I, I heard it put best uh, probably last year in, in one, one of the things I was, I was listening to. Uh, bloke said, uh, I may be wrong, but at least I'm not lying. <laughs> and I'm like, oh. <laughs> Oh man, that is good. That is good. It's it's. Yeah. I, I could <laughs> yeah. see I could see people just eating that up. They'd rather be with the person who's admitting to that that they're fallible, but not not misleading yeah. you. Again, it's that sense of authenticity, and it also links back to this projection of certainty, and that is something that's big. Uh, to at least in these communities, for for someone to say, I am pretty certain of what the problem is and how to fix it, uh, or I'm wrong and but I'm not lying to you. Um, and that was something that in the British newspaper reporting around health and uh, environmental risks during the '90s and early 2000s, this sense of certainty was huge and it caused massive issues because on one hand, so let's take. Um, Mad cow disease was was the big one. That was the big conspiracy theory that the journalists were proven right on. So late 80s, early mm -hmm. 90s, um, you had the journalists running stories saying, we think that there might be a link between British beef, trademark, and uh, a neurodegenerative disorder. And the government said, no, mm -hmm. no, there is no link. British beef is safe. And there is uh, pictures of the health minister at a time quite literally force feeding his young daughter a hamburger, a beef burger, just, just shoving it in her face. And he's like, British beef is safe. 
And the press, the press from both sides of the aisle, right and the left, were saying, well, no, actually, we're hearing more anecdotal stuff. There was a cat that, that ate some beef and has now got some, some neurodegenerative issues. We think there's a problem. And the government went, no, 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 we've got our scientists together. And our, our scientists have said that, that British beef is safe until about 1996, where the government turned around and went, Actually, yeah, there is a bit of a link. Uh, you, you, you can get mad cow disease, but it's not a big link. So when the government was sitting there saying, we are so certain that, you, that this product is safe, only for it to be proven that, no, actually, it, it, it's not safe. There is a risk there. You know, that really amplified it. And, of course, the, the press were proven right in their own minds. And that just just pushed forward this campaigning on health and environmental risks. Um, and that's what we see when you look at a lot of the uh, COVID misinformation, um, you know, Vax, the, the COVID vaccine will kill you. It will either kill you now or it mm -hmm. will kill you 40 years down the line. It will kill you. And it's just that sense of certainty right. that you don't really get in, uh, in, in scientific communication because scientists speak tentatively. They will talk about probabilities mm -hmm. and possibilities and likelihoods that you don't get from these influential social media influencers. Yeah, you really only get that kind of certainty either from these social media, you know, conspiracy thinking influencers or the government. Yep. Those are the those are the two entities that are going to be most certain about everything. And it's and and so it's it's under it, it really is. I mean, you can you can it really is understandable in a, in a certain sense to to or at least relatable to see where the the how this this skepticism of what it, what what people are being told by the government is is to see how it's born because you do have a story you know you have stories and there's similar stories about something that is that is confirmed to be absolutely safe and then it turns out is not so safe yeah. and and oftentimes you know the scientists involved in that work they're not the ones like you say not the ones asserting that you know that that safety it's going to be the people who are more concerned with public unrest and just keeping everything calm that are going to be trying to convince everyone how sure they are about yeah, everything. Or, altern or alternatively, you, you've got people who are trying to raise the alarm, so to speak, in, in, in quotes, um, which, again, if you look at MMR, you had Andrew yeah. Wakefield. and uh, <laughs> Absolutely. I was just going to say his I name. Think, yep. I, think it was, <laughs> I was just going to mention him. I think him. the mother's name was Jackie. I want to say Jackie Fletcher, but it was definitely Jackie. Um, she was probably in the papers more than uh, more than Wakefield. Um, but she was mm -hmm. the one who was saying, no, the MMR vaccine is dangerous. Uh, it is a problem. Yeah. Um, no tentative language at all. She was saying this is a massive problem. And uh, the what was it? The Sunday or sorry, the Express newspaper campaigned heavily on it will give you auto will give your children autism. Uh, the other right wing papers were sort of focusing more on the parental rights issue. Uh, that's that's a bit of the story that often gets overlooked. But it was definitely the Express that campaigned heavily on the uh, on the autism link. And that's just a great example of how even when something is 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 uh, successfully, even when a claim is successfully countered, that that original narrative can oftentimes just continue forward without, you know, with almost unaffected by any evidence to the contrary. Well, although there was no evidence to the, to the contrary, the MMR debate was something that was inherently British. 
mainly because we had the thalidomide um, sort of controversy in the 50s. And this is something that not a lot of people are aware of. But uh, yeah, in, in the 50s mm-hmm. and, and 60s, uh, I want to say millions of, of pregnant women were given this drug thalidomide uh, to, to combat morning sickness. You know, they'd go to their doctor and they'd say, doctor, you know, I'm pregnant. I'm feeling really sick in the morning. And the doctor goes, ah, there's this new drug on the market called thalidomide. Uh, take it. It will, it will solve right. your uh, morning sickness issue. Um, it did do that, but it also uh, resulted in a, a vast number of birth defects, um, miscarriage rates through the roof. Uh, so it was a sense of the doctor, the person you should trust, was telling these women, uh, you know, this is a drug that I am prescribing to you. You know, I'm a representative of the NHS. What reason do you have to doubt me? Um, so women said, well, yeah, sure, you're, you're saying this is fine proved to be a problem and you see time and time again particularly in the british press when there is a scare about uh, new drugs or, or vaccines or anything like that will almost always go back to thalidomide yeah and then and, and the birth defects with thalidomide were in were insanely serious including i mean that this is that's a time period when you know the the issue was was the was limb disfigurements and things like that if the baby was born yeah. at all and the and it absolutely was you know it was a horrific thing and you know there there have been there have been similar things in the united states as well where you know something was the efficacy of something was was you know supposedly shown to be to be true and then or shown you know shown to be present and then it turns out it wasn't even if there wasn't any serious complications i mean this is what's coming out you know very in i don't know very recently in the last 5 years or so maybe 10 regarding uh, blood pressure medication, you know, specifically statin mm. drugs that they have little to no effect. They, they affect the blood pressure at the, you know, when it's taken, but they don't have any, uh, any effect on, on actually preventing death. People don't actually, you know, like die any later or live any longer rather than, you know, when they take the drugs versus when they don't. Yeah, and the the opioid crisis uh, has has been quite a big issue, especially within the the, the sort of right wing networks, if you want. Um, you know, because oxy uh, oxycontin uh, has been a major major issue in uh, the sort of uh, rust belt areas, the the the, the sort of very rural mm-hmm. areas. Um, but where that gets escalated into right-wing narratives or, or sort of further right narratives, if you want, is where you have the white identitarians say, look, these these areas right. are white areas. They are poor white rural areas that were being targeted by a pharma firm. And then they go one step beyond and say, well, who was in charge of the, of the pharma firm, which is a fair question. But then they go one step beyond and start looking at early life sections on wikipedia and going oh okay so this this person's jewish okay so now we're getting into the wider network so at each step you can see where they're showing you why white folk are being uh, targeted for what they believe to be systematic uh erasure genocide um and for for a vulnerable person if you want a, a, a sort of vulnerable young man let's 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 create a, a, a fictitious person you know early 20s is is in this current cultural milieu is seeing uh, massive changes regarding demographics massive changes regarding uh the, the sort of sense of masculinity very unsure of themselves as most people in their early 20s are and they're finding a community online that's saying Do you know what 
you are being targeted, you are under assault, you are uh, under threat, come to us. <laughs> We've got the answer. I, I feel like the tagline for our show should be, it's always an epistemology problem. But this is another epistemology problem where the, the folks who are perhaps more measured in their language, uh, uh, scientists and uh, academics who will often say things with 10 caveats and, and asides, that doesn't really communicate whatever their message is in a uh, marketable way that's easy to remember or resonates in a simple way because it's just not simple. And I think that uh, I would typically trust people who say 10 caveats before the thing that they say, before the person who said, this is absolutely definitely true, period. Yeah. <laughs> but that's not necessarily how it <laughs> tends to resonate, where the, the, the scientist who's almost too convoluted on, on Larry King Live or whatever, if that show's even a thing still. <laughs> I don't think so. And I don't think he's alive. <laughs> Larry King unalive. The, the, you, you have folks who are, who are communicating their message that is with, with a much more measured approach to try for some kind of accuracy yeah. are not going to go viral compared to the guy who says, well, it's the Jews. Or, or even, or even the vaccine is going to kill you. Yeah. Well, even, even just in in our conversation right now, I've as I'm talking, I'm going over the things that I'm saying in my head. I'm going, this could be taken out of context. This could be taken out of context. <laughs> oh, All I of know. those things. Yeah. And yeah. if you yeah. trip yourself up like that, you're not going to be able to have a conversation. Um, so yeah. you you kind of have to 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 unwind the, the the screw just a little bit in order to, to have this sense of an authentic uh, conversation. But another side of, of things is that a lot of uh, scientific output is squarely designed to get itself into the newspapers, at least in the UK. Um, in the UK, we have what's known as the Research Excellence Framework, and that sort of governs how money is, is delivered to university departments. And one of the metrics is... Um, impact and of course that can be counted as does your does your newspaper get in uh, does your article get mentioned in the newspaper so now what you have is press offices who are crafting press releases in such a way that journalists go ah my editor will love that I can put that in. And there's been a little bit of research that has, that has suggested that press releases themselves are making claims that the article does not make. It's the same kind of thing that I, I see on, on social media when an official social media account, like, for example, you know, from the Washington Post or from the time, from the New York Times, got to be careful, it's the New York Times, yeah. you have your own, um, the, that the, when they when they when they share the article on social media, the article isn't being shared by the by the author of the article. It's not being shared by the editor. It's not and nobody is nobody responsible for creating that article is the one sharing it. The person who shares it is the social social media manager for that publication, and they often use incredibly really off base uh, subject lines or, you know, or include very, you know, very, uh, exaggerated text to, to go along with these articles simply to get people to yeah. click on. It's a Barnum and Bailey headline to, to, to catch the readership. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I mean, I, I interviewed, uh, a, 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 
risk reporter is, is what I call him. I can't, I can't tell anyone that. But I interviewed a risk reporter and uh, I made the mistake. So it was one of my first interviews and, and I, I said to them, uh, so I, tell me, how, how did you view your job as uh, improving the public understanding of science? And they, they said to me, as, as sort of in, in an in a old genteel British way, like, uh, let, 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 me, let me stop you right there. Uh, my job was never to improve the public understanding of science. Uh, my job <laughs> was to sell newspapers. And I, I had to recover, but they were right. <laughs> they, and then they are right. They don't work for the government. They, you know, they don't have a mission, you know, other than selling newspapers as they yeah. very and accurately so when, said. You, when you look at <laughs> Telegram, what is their job? Their job is to put out the content that, that they want readers, they want their, their followers to see. Um, and as I said, people aren't stupid. They know that there is uh, the, these not manipulation it's not the right word but people know that things are going on within the mainstream media so when you're looking at a, a opaque system like the main like mainstream journalism or you're looking on your telegram your telegram app and you know that the reason why that person has published that bit of content is because they want you to see it again engenders authenticity really mm -hmm. brings it home uh, you could just be someone sitting on the toilet scrolling through your social media but you know that the things that are on that telegram channel is authentically curated mm -hmm. yeah and you do you're right you do know that and in, in, in a way that you know I, I think that the next in line is probably a platform like twitter which is still mostly the people that you want to follow but they they still have uh, algorithmic curation you know, they, they'll, they'll show your interests or based on your interests and, you know, but then, and then you get into other things like, you know, other platforms like, like Facebook and you see all kinds of things that have nothing to do with what you ever wanted to see. <laughs> yeah. Well, even on, even on, on Twitter. So today I was scrolling from my Twitter as you do. And, uh, there was the, um, the, the, the topic suggestion of, of sport. I don't care about football, right. <laughs> like soccer. I really do not care about it. And if <laughs> there was any form of data collection on me, it would know that, that Martin Rook does not do right. soccer. So why it put that in front of me? <laughs> and yes, it was one of the uh, one of the, the the ladies who were part of the the England national team who I believe did very well uh, in 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 a, a recent um, recent competition, but. I'm not interested in soccer. So was it because it was, I'm in the UK and it's presuming that I am into soccer or is it a sense that it was because it was a tweet from the, uh, the one of the, 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 the ladies team mm -hmm. members? Is that why it was put in front of me? I, I thought everyone, every citizen in the UK was required to, to like soccer. Oh, isn't it by law? Oh yeah, yeah, it's yeah, it's, it's the same the same sort of law that has us uh, practicing archery every Sunday to shoot the Welsh. So you know, <laughs> we 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 follow under some of this some similar laws in the U.S. J Jules is a uh, is a huge uh, American football fan. <laughs> I, I'm it's a lot closer to uh the the episode of IT crowd where they're they're learning about sports from this online blog. It's the it's the the how to speak like a hooligan blog. <laughs> yeah. And honestly, that's what I have to do before every Super Bowl. Uh I first find out who's playing just so I can go and have good food and beer with people who do care about that. 
I'll memorize who the teams are <laughs> just before I show up. I've realized that the when I when I work when I work with men, just just it's easier to go, who do you support? How are they doing this year? How'd they do this week? What was the ref like? Every week <laughs> I well, I don't care, but it starts a conversation with them. But yeah, so so I'm sitting there going, well, Twitter, why are you showing me this tweet? I'm not interested in, in sports. But then, you know, you will have other people asking similar questions about similar things that are being put in front of them. Not necessarily women's sports, but other things. Why is this in front of me? Or I can go to Telegram where there's none of this. Right. If I don't like it, if I don't like a channel, I can just stop viewing it. I can I can remove myself from it and I've never got to be burdened with it ever again. Yeah, it's it's, it's very true. I, and you, you are able to insulate yourself a lot more effectively on on Telegram from mainstream media as well, because I, a lot of, you know, main, a lot of uh, not so much in the US, but internationally, a lot of media outlets have a presence on Telegram. And so you can you can follow that. But if you don't, you never see it. You'll never see anything that they say. It's a very new and interesting phenomena called the uh, the news finds me phenomena. And I realized that actually I embody it. Um, I don't watch the right. news. I, I don't I don't watch any news channel yet. I am broadly kept up to date with at least American politics just simply through the podcast that, that I listen mm -hmm. to. Um and it's absolutely fascinating if you think about it. I am detached from uh, the, the sort of mainstream junket, if you want. Um, yeah, I could very well have, a, have an articulate discussion on uh, the, the midterm prospects, 2024 prospects, anything like that, as a British man in the UK. Right, yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. As, as an American, I apologize. <laughs> because there is not much going on good in our in our politics in the united states <laughs> no but that's that is the the one of the big questions it is a sense of how politics has become infotainment oh i know it has it's a it's it becomes another game to watch and you can see you can see yeah. when like on election night it is it has everything in common with the super bowl I mean, you know, you just mentioned it, Jules, and the, the, the like every, every bit of coverage is exactly the same that they would as they would cover some championship sporting event. They they have the same type of stages set up. They have the same kind of commentary about what's going on in different districts. And is it going to flip blue? Is it going to be purple? You know, what's it going to do? And it is and they're it, speculating like it's a horse race it is and people bet on it accordingly as well even even though it's not legal to do so but it still happens there there are betting markets that set odds on whether or not a political candidate is going to win the election and one of the other things that have really been introduced since trump uh, is the sense that rather than uh, rather than football uh, politics has become more like professional <laughs> wrestling that like yeah, yeah. But that's one of the, one of the strange maxims is if you understand professional professional wrestling, you understand the world, because all you're watching are political promos. You're buying their merch. You know, you're you're, you're there chanting in the crowd with your Austin three sixteen sign. Um, <laughs> all, all the world's a stage, and in the middle of it is a wrestling ring. And, and you know, we, we've talked about this before, but that but that aspect of wrestling, I I completely agree is. 
is a very good model for understanding how like the world that we live in because in wrestling you have this concept of kayfabe where you're you're presenting something that is entirely concocted it's it's totally artificial but it's being presented as if it is real and we get a lot of that i mean we we very much have yeah. have that that phenomenon in in the mass culture in the united states and it's not just it's not restricted to here but I, I think we're largely responsible for spreading it. We see that we, we see this sort of cynicism that comes out of this kind of thinking when it comes to looking at our politics, that it doesn't matter who you vote for because it, it nothing really changes. And I, I think some of that is being is being tested rather harshly right now because we really do see the difference between, you know, one particular candidate and another in the last uh, in the last few election cycles. And, you know, many of the things that have gone on recently really probably wouldn't have happened, at least in anything resembling the the way that they did occur, if Trump had not been elected in 2016 and brought in all the people associated with him. You know, so there is that kayfabe element, that artificiality to what to the world that we're witnessing. But at the same time, there is actual significance to the, you know, to how people go ahead and vote on on election days. Yeah, and and when you're looking at the the wider sort of fandom, if you, if you want around politics, particularly on the right, what you've seen is people who, on the right, who when 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 Trump was running, were very critical of Trump, the never Trumpers, yeah. if you want, people like Ben Shapiro, who you know were saying that this man is not conservative. I don't like him. Um, they've they've gone from sort of a reasonably nuanced stance on on trump to just this week people like stephen crowder were, were basically saying that the 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 raid on mar-a-lago this is it this is the hill that i'm prepared to die on are you now going to follow me um, i think his tweet i, I, so I think his tweet been, was this is war sleep well tonight <laughs> yeah <laughs> what a radicalized radicalization of stephen right. crowder he was not radical back in 2014 <laughs> But at the at the mean in in the meantime, you had people in 2014 like uh, Richard Spencer, who was really moderating his language around the idea of the ethno state and the balkanization of, of America. Not a great idea, a horrendous idea. Right. But he was communicating it very. Uh, what's the word I'm looking for here? Tactfully. Mm-hmm. He's very tactful in what he was saying. You had to decode his messaging to get to that, to get to the, the sort of terrible center of it. Um, but now that side of things has been pushed way out into this area of, of Telegram. It's not in the mainstream discourse anymore. What is in the mainstream discourse is, you know, sleep well for tonight, uh, sleep well for tomorrow we go to war. Yeah. Yeah, and he's Stephen Spencer. Uh, Richard Spencer was in that in that kind of uh, uh, calculated language and the presentation that he gives off uh, for his uh, uh, essentially neo-Nazi rhetoric and and ideology is reminds me of in American History X where you have. All of the skinheads and uh, uh, and and people in the in the club who are who are dressed up in this uh, very radical kind of a, a aesthetic, and you have the old man who's publishing the papers 
who wears the dorky glasses and has the the button up and a tie and and the rest of it and he's kind of saying well i don't have to do that shit anymore this is the way that that we go forward and i think that uh richard spencer and and a lot of others like that had that sort of uh uh beating around the bush and and measured way of speaking about something that is eth- basically calling for an ethno state meanwhile after the trump era if you will it it mm. has transformed into how much more of a circus can you be than the next performer and that yeah. is really the winning the winning angle i remember in the 2000s when bush had to go w had to go out of his way to say we're not against muslims and to be very specific and 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 measured about that while that same sort of rhetoric doesn't even fly today doesn't win you even a percentage point in yeah. those republican circles well you're seen as a fraud you're seen as as being completely disingenuine and the ones they listen to you know like we like very much like we've been talking about with the the certainty of the influencers on telegram the ones the the people that actually get listened to are the ones that know as a like for a fact that the the great replacement is occurring right now and there is an agenda to somehow reduce the population of white people worldwide and you know and and then tie it together with with UN actions the uh, you know specifically the um the the great reset which was you know meant to be an economic plan for dealing with the fallout from covid but it also has something to do somehow with reducing the population of white people worldwide yeah um and i mean that's that's that's, that's the thing that they're, they're sort of slightly further right than 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 center is or just standard conservatives i guess you could say uh they are they are reaffirming themselves. I mean, I mean, I know we've there's been the 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 Rhino Republican in name only rhetoric for a while now. Um, but I mean, I've been paying attention to this stuff since about 2008, maybe earlier than that, and I've never so keenly felt it being established that you are either on team conservative or beyond that, or you're not. You are either on team conservative or you're a leftist. Yeah. There is no sort of neoliberal center grounds anymore. No one likes a neoliberal center. And it's interesting because that is exactly the rhetoric, but that is not typically how people are behaving. And, you know, most of the people are behaving in a sense of, you know, very much in this neoliberal sort of centrist mentality that that's the world that they occupy. But that is you know, by this group that you're just describing this, you know, sort of anybody right of center all the way over to the the most extreme far right sees that whole crowd, which is probably the majority of the people in the United States as absolute Maoists, you know, that are just hell bent on trying to destroy the country. That's that's the language that's used yeah. to describe all of them. I mean, to, to consider somebody like like Joe Biden, a communist is I, it's 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 so beyond <laughs> ridiculous that it's it's hard to even you know muster up any interest to try to dispute it because there's nothing. I mean, you have to. This is somebody who's had to be dragged into more progressive political stances, but yet somehow he's you know he's right next to you know ne- next to Chairman Mao as far as how ideological he is. 
Yeah, and at the same time, uh, there's also this messaging out there that, that suggests that, you know, if you bought a, a MAGA hat to, to support the candidate that you wanted to be to be president in, in 2015, uh, you are going to have hordes of Antifa kick your door down and drag you out into yeah, the street, right. take you straight to your employer and say, <laughs> this man's a Nazi, fire right. him. Um, right, just, just buying an article of clothing is a supreme act of courage. <laughs> yeah, you, you went to Trump Tower once, therefore you're, you're an insurrectionist. Um, but that has that has terrified people. That has definitely got people got people scared. Um, you know, they, they are definitely afraid that that by having you know right wing leanings, if you want right wing views, even conservative views, uh, or even simply just just you know having a, a, a Christian faith, um, that that they are going to be hounded and attacked for expressing that. Well, that and that and that's exactly the language that is, in, as I think, very intentionally being spread amongst those circles, mainly. You know that that this is, and I, I definitely have seen that from following the um, the the Christian nationalists that we've been following. That you know somebody espousing those ideas. One of the main things that they're that they're spreading is the is the absolute fact that you are being oppressed for being of a, of this particular faith that they're trying there, there are yeah. people whose, whose main agenda is to try to oppress you and somehow restrict you from expressing this faith that you have. And, but outside of that circle, people don't really care. You know, like there's, there's not really a, a large group of people that actually do care. I mean, I, I know that, you know, there, there are, you know, there are plenty of, of critics of religion that are, that are still around. And even though the, the new atheist movement has sort of trickled away into, and turned into other things, but even those people, they were generally only talking to their own audiences. That wasn't, um, you know, that wasn't an incredibly mainstream movement. You know, they had some mainstream coverage but it was most of their mainstream coverage was critical of their anti-religion stance. That, that, that's one of the things where everything being public uh, on, on, on Twitter and YouTube and stuff like that has caused massive issues. Um, you know, the, the sort of, again, 2015 post Gamergate, but pre Donald Trump election campaign period was, was known as the, the anti SJW mm -hmm. period. And there was tons of content that was being produced, which mostly just found videos from young women, young feminists, sort of early twenties around that, you know, and these, these, these women are just putting out their ideas, same as everyone, you know, and they're, they're, they're doing it through a feminist lens. And, you know, you had, you had uh, mostly blokes. Yeah. Uh, with big YouTube followings, uh, taking these videos, cutting them apart, debunking, uh, their, their, uh, their, their, uh, their, their faults and opinions, uh, very similar to what was happening in these uh, atheist wars in, in the 2010s, uh, the, the, the sort of uh, taking on the uh, New Age creationists, um, until we got to the point that everyone got really bored with it. Um, and there was a lot of discourse around, well, hang on, we're kind of just taking the piss out of these, these young girls. We're not doing anything new. We're, we're kind of just 
retreading old ground. We, we get it. We don't like feminists. We're creating content for our group that's saying we don't like feminists. And the feminists are creating content for their group saying we don't like cis white men. Um, what are we doing here? And then the, the, the election campaign happened that breathed a whole new life into that sphere. Um, but yeah, it is people producing stuff for their little groups, which is the one thing that Telegram does great because it's saying, hey, if you have a little group and you want to create content and you want to just just do it in relative obscurity, we've got the platform here for you. We're not looking. You're not looking to connect with people. That's great. Be here. Publish your content. Publish links to your uh, to, to your funding sources. Do that over here without being bothered. Yeah, sell your supplements. <laughs> Yeah, so you're, so so links to your PayPal and yeah, well they don't really do Patreon anymore. There's a lot of people getting deplatformed uh, de- from uh, from PayPal, but still. Right, right, exactly. Yeah, and, and I think that that you know the you you brought up the social justice, uh, the you know the social justice warrior sort of movement that was taking place. I mean, movement's not rather really the right word, but groundswell probably is more more accurate, and and all this backlash to it, and I think that that. You know, that obviously combined with those events surrounding Gamergate and the way that that the way the way that those lines were drawn and, you know, and then kind of jumping forward into, I don't know, I suppose 2017 or so with James Damore uh, showing up on Joe Rogan's mm-hmm. podcast, the, you know, the like that, that sort of thing. And, you know, and there's there's plenty of other names that I could toss in there that have Gad's uh, Gad Saad is another one. Um, Bogosian is another one, <laughs> you know, the, obviously Jordan Peterson, the, you have these, these people that are, you know, almost by definition reactionaries, but they're reactionaries mm-hmm. from this science perspective, supposedly uh, with the exception of Peterson, but you know, they're, they're supposed like, you know, you have Jeffrey Miller and Gad Saad who are both, uh, uh, oh, let's see now, uh, Jeffrey Miller is an evolutionary biologist. And Gad Saad, I want to say, is an evolutionary psychologist, but I'm not positive about that off the top of my head. You know, they're coming in and supposedly like lending some kind of credence to these positions. So it's not just men reacting to these, the, you know, the this feminist language and uh, uh, like uh, a competing outlook for how we should be seeing society and the 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 sort of built-in systemic problems that we have. Now we have science that's backing us up. But it's not really science. It's more this sort of idea of science. I, I, I think that there's a, there, there are so many assumptions that are sort of slipped in along with it that it, it, it becomes its own problem that they're adding to it. Yeah. A lot of that language at the time was pseudoscientific in nature, but it was very complex. It was presenting the, the mysteries of the world through complexity. Um, and that actually really, at least to me, comes out of this uh, 2010s atheist wars, resistance against new age creationism and, and evangelicalism and stuff like that, where there was this real big push for facts, logic, and a sort of scientific articulation, which again, when you look at uh, the, the sort of pickup artist uh, sort of group or community or network, if Absolutely. You want, what they were really doing was using pseudo psychology and saying, men, what you want is to get laid. Every man wants to get laid. Sex is good, but you are not that great at getting sex. 
Come to me and I will teach you the mysteries of female psychology, the things you need to learn in order to get a woman to want to sleep with you. And it was this, this real sense of a behavioral breakdown of exactly what to do, not to manipulate, although it was very manipulative, but it was never presented as a manipulation, but the tips and tricks of, of getting what you get, getting what you want, that being sex. Um, but over time, that sense of, of pseudo psychological or com complex language has really dropped off. Um, and I, I put it sort of around the, the Kekistan uh, era of, of the Trump election, where this sense of spiritual mythology or mythologizing really sort of started to, to, to just nibble away at the edges. And from that, it was a sense of, well, actually, rationality and facts and logic really can't explain the social world. There is something about us as humans that need some sort of narrative-based understanding of the world. Um, and in, in subsequent years, it has that has really come to the fore. And we see that a lot with things like QAnon, which, you know, is unverifiable information. It is simply a story. I mean, it's absolutely unverifiable by definition. Yeah, but it, it was a guiding sense of sense-making for people. They, they understood the world as uh, politics is horrible, evil, and corrupts. Donald Trump is the light that will illuminate the darkness. Uh, these these messages that are coming out are ways to understand the the battle that's going on. Um, so if we believe in, or trust in the plan, then you know we will one day see victory over the darkness. Um, which that absolutely makes sense as as, as a framework. Um, to, to sort of visualize politics. Um, but it's bollocks. It's right. complete bollocks. <laughs> yeah. uh, but we are, we as humans are storytelling creatures. And, and you think about how much of your daily conversation talks about stories and, and mythos and, and things like that. And how much of, of Western culture is built up on, uh, sort of, uh, European mythologies. Um, and that's one thing that the, the sort of, rational sensor really dropped the ball on was not understanding that people really liked really like stories and they left it for the, the the sort of far right radicals to say hey guys let me sell you a story because no one else is there there's that uh the next generation star trek the next generation episode darmok and jalad uh where where uh, Picard is encountering this alien species who only speaks in anecdotes and metaphors and their whole language can't be perceived by the communication devices on, on the spaceship because everything that they do is a reference to a previous story. And mm. we, that I think does kind of speak to, to the same thing that we're discussing here, that idea of, expressing something solely through a narrative through solely through a story that only can really be picked up by the irrational models that we're making that that it just doesn't connect with with the logical explanations that we have yeah yeah very very much so um and then the further you the further you go go into it is the sense that the the logical models or at least the facts underpinning the logical models, um, there are faulty assumptions built into it. There, there are 
methods that that don't properly measure uh, the, the the things that they set out to measure. Um, there are issues with science. Um, that, that people don't necessarily want to pick up on that gives those conspiracy theorists and, and the far right radicals ammo uh, to, to absolutely just just hit that point and say, why are you listening to these people who can't even admit there's a problem? Um, I may be wrong, but at least I'm not lying. Yeah, exactly. It's back to that. that it's back to that same adage. And you can it allows it really does. You know, like I, I know we've touched on this before, but it, it really does give me insight into understanding how, how it can go from from this place far back along this sort of, you know, winding kind of a decision tree all the way up until, you know, this this the current form that we see things right now. They, they have this initial suspicion that things are not what they seem. And then they start, you know, they start from that place and then they they unfortunately encounter somebody who tells you, you know, the, well, this is how it is. And, you know, that person is yeah. pretty much just making it up as they go. But there's enough sort of sprinkled in things that are not able to be verified, but are prevent presented in such a way that they are acceptable enough and feed into this you know, a lot, a lot of times like victim narrative that I, I, I haven't, I haven't received the things that I think I'm entitled to in my society. And other there, there are these people who want to take away even more. And then that, you know, they just keep building up on this, over, you know, one step and at a time incrementally until you end up with these grand stories that now they're, it's, it's almost impossible to unravel them. And, you know, people get completely lost in these stories. You know, again, how did these people in, in Canada end up d believing that they could in any way whatsoever execute a civil, a, a citizen's arrest of police officers? And but yet they sh en enough showed up to cause a stir. Yeah, no, but we've with that story, because I'm not I'm not familiar with it. Um, the 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 sort of main influencer that, that you mentioned, did they go down to the actual site and were they arrested? She, she was she, she did not get arrested, but she was there. Serving refreshments. Well, okay, I, I can give a half point for actually, <laughs> she actually showed up. But she was manning. She was manning the. Uh, she, she was manning she the was refreshments serving table. refreshments instead of re <laughs> serving refreshments instead of arrest warrants. But yeah, and that is that is one thing that again on on the the far right they're also doing is they're bleeding uh followers away from if, if you can if you can say it a more sort of rational center right uh because they are framing some of the the, the more or rather the, the less obnoxious uh influencers as grifters as as people who would send their their followers out to do something or say something stupid get themselves arrested but over here on the further right well actually we are uh, we're we're aware of the FBI. We're aware of the Fed ops that can take place. We're aware of all the dirty tactics. So we're actually even more safe uh, because we don't want you to go do something stupid like Fed post or or, or try and arrest a police officer. Um, there are people who are less extreme than us who want you to do crazy mm -hmm. stuff. Um, and that's. That, that, that's a part of it that's not not being discussed they are very much trying to trying to bleed followers it was like um dave dave rubin uh who was it dave rubin ronda Santos. i think trump turned up at a uh turning point usa uh event in florida and i was i know DeSantis and rubin were there for definite um 
But then you had the, the Goyam Defence League turn up, uh, complete with their anti-Semitic masks and everything like that. Um, so in one sense, you know, people were saying, well, the, 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 uh, Goyam Defence League turned up to, to your event, Dave Rubin, therefore you had Nazis at your event. No, the, Dave, Dave Rubin is, is, a, is a gay man who's Jewish. The, 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 the Goyam Defence League have nothing, don't want anything to do with Dave Rubin, but what they want is the people who went to the event. And the, the, the Goyam Defence League will say, we've got the real truth. You're being peddled a lie by this, this, uh, this corporate shill, this alternative influencer shill. We've got the real truth. Come listen to us. And what, what, I mean, what they don't realise is that Rubin is only a shill for himself. the word is obviously overused but he is the sort of grifter's grifter because he he will go whichever way the wind blows him he he still buddies with ben shapiro who has publicly said to dave rubin directly i can't support your lifestyle yeah but they share so much audience that it's in his best interest to just stay quiet and keep receiving the money Take, take the money, get on stage next to Ron DeSantis, who could be America's next president. And who who will, like, if he thinks, if he needs to, will decide to ban gay marriage in the United States, you know, or at least encourage its banning. Yeah. He doesn't, he won't have the authority to do so, but he will definitely encourage it being revisited. So, yeah, Dave, Dave Rubin has, I think, probably zero scruples about what he's willing to do to make a paycheck. Martin, one of the things that I... I wanted to ask you uh, about Telegram specifically and how you've been looking into... Thank you, Jules. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, how you've been looking into how these groups are interacting and, and how people are interacting with Telegram uh, is, if you, if you had to guess, where do, you, where do you see the direction of the platform going for these groups? Specifically, how is it going if you could predict uh how is it going forward to influence some of these right-wing groups uh if at all i mean maybe more of a feedback maybe less uh or how do you think uh, uh telegram is going to transform in the near future from its current state based on it its influence or, or based on the influence on it from these groups that have sort of uh, jump the ship on all these other platforms and and have concentrated on on Telegram. Yeah, that is that is the big question. Um, and honestly, since uh, the, the the FBI um, executed that search warrant on, on Mar-a-Lago, um, any any prediction that can be made has totally gone out the window. Because um, one of the big senses is that the the, the boomers have been activated. Um, the they are very upset, um, and so from what I from what I've seen, um, following Jan sixth, there was a massive spike in in uh, activity. Sorry, not activity. Massive spike in uh, people flooding to to um, Telegram. I've need to I need to double check it, but I'm I'm presuming there will be another another big spike. Um, and we'll see a lot more uh, older people discussing things, sharing their memes, uh, and, and 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 sort of trying to build up this sort of sense of a um, patriotic alternative taking place on on uh, Telegram. Um, 
Truth Social is 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 the Trump uh, is the Trump platform. There's been no other alternative social media that that people want to go to. You've got your news on Telegram. You've got your meme channels. You've got all sorts of different channels on there for people to curate their feed. Um, more broadly, if we're spo- if we're speaking about how. Uh, the sort of radical network will change over time. Um, I think conspiritualists are going to are going to grow, um, sort of twinning conspiracy theories along with this sense of new age spirituality, and I believe that's going to be very popular with women. Um, with, with men, there is definitely the focus on on health and how do you how to become a sort of uh, stoic crusader, if you want, in these modern times. Uh, but for women, I was I was listening to one of the podcasts and uh, the the lady was very much putting this putting forward this idea that she regrets being sort of into New Age and into Wicca in her in her twenties and thirties, um, and she made the declaration that the devil is in the yoga studio. Um, great line, don't <laughs> yeah. get me wrong. <laughs> the sense that even even yoga, even realigning your chakras, is is a, a satanic ritual, or just or just having a nice stretch, <laughs> <laughs> stretching for Satan. Yeah. Um, so I think I think that's going to get popular because of that that gender dynamic, and there really hasn't been a space for for women in the in in the far right. Uh, Christian nationalism it could grow, uh, but the the Christian nationalists and the the pagan anti semites and the neo Nazis all seem to really enjoy bickering about uh, about religion um, and a lot of the uh, the actual national socialist groups there the, the neo Nazi groups uh, are really trying to move away from the religious argument and really wanting to focus on white solidarity and, and pro white politics white advocacy as they call it um, whereas the Christian nationalists they do get wrapped up in those arguments around religion and that often sees them falling out with the pagans who tend to believe that actually you know white western culture is based on european pagan heritage that christianity itself is a sense of uh, jewish subversion um and that should be cast out with with the rest of it um the sort of zuma american first energy has really died off and that's really become sort of a pseudo incel movement they, they've all sort of gathered around uh nick fuentes but he's been having some major issues uh recently um QAnon has, has pretty much died off and splintered off into its different conspiritualist uh segments and neo-nazi segments and and, and stuff like that as well yeah much of uh, you know yeah. we uh it was it was a uh, widely covered, you know, by people who follow the conspiracy theories online, <clears throat> who follow conspiracy theories online and the people that are spreading them that Q started posting again earlier this year, but it has not had the reception right that, that it, that it last did the last, you know, when, when that account was last active, I mean, every, everybody was suspicious of it for the most part, there was an initial acceptance of, uh, of you know the idea that Q had returned from wherever the hell that person had been to what's going on here. This doesn't make any sense, and the, and the criticisms have been incredibly intense on uh, on Acun. Yeah. Oh, the the other 
The other thing uh, that there might be some growth uh, in is a sort of resurgence of the manosphere, uh, especially regarding Andrew Tate. And again, that sort of represents, as I was talking about, the sort of dissolution of this language of complexity. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Andrew Tate is is very much, uh, <laughs> the mantra is very much fuck bitches and get money. Um, and he's sort of saying to men, you can be this jet setting superstar, uh, but he's, he uses controversy. And I mean, there's some big controversy surrounding that guy, but he uses controversy to, to, uh, amplify his platform especially on tiktok uh very very big on tiktok um but getting a lot of spread on there um and as we've seen once you once you see uh one person really uh making money and making moves in a particular genre of content you will see others and it is really broadcasting this sense of be a fighter be a warrior the sigma male grind set um stuff that we haven't really seen since uh cernovich's guerrilla mindset about five years ago now and this is this is a sharp departure from neil strauss who we were mentioning earlier with with the uh the game and and his other books where those books are are not great but (laughs) as far as in the manosphere a lot less fuck bitches get money yeah in the rhetoric uh yeah, those books were, as I said, you know, this is this is how you do it. This is the step by step guide of of getting what you want. Um, whereas with Tate, it is this this sense of be aggressive, hit hard, hit fast. A lot of that fighter talk again, going back to this sense of of, of WWE. It, it's basically uh, Conor McGregor cross Jordan Peterson. Would probably be the mm-hmm. best way of putting it. Um, hit hard, hit fast, get what you want um, because the world hates you. It hates you for being a man. So be the villain they always want you to be. And that's that's Tate. He he got booted out of uh, Big Brother, the, the the reality TV show, after eleven days because he was itching for a fight. That's somebody who I've uh, I've been following recently as well, and there doesn't seem to be any any bottom to to any of that. It, it seems to be a, like just an endless reservoir of contempt for women. Hmm. He he's doing these uh, these photos of him dressed up in in sort of cobbled together tactical gear and holding holding assault rifles and things like that and or sitting on a motorcycle i saw this one where he, he was sitting on a motorcycle with an ar15 uh, th- this it, it is a very uh, it's a very aesthetic movement that he's trying to generate around himself yeah see if you'd have asked me the question of, of how things are going to change a week ago I, I would have said that that sense of tactical um you know oath keeping patriot is is on the out um you know, uh, Black Rifle Coffee uh, got absolutely mocked um, because they they uh, did not defend Carl uh, Rittenhouse, uh, and I think that really damaged the idea of the Alpha Bro um, product line, if you want. Um, but now, following the the the, uh, the, the execution of the search warrant, um, I don't know that that could be coming back. I mean, we've seen those sort of movements. We had the we had the Boogaloo Boys and things like that that didn't really have any impact but i don't know going forward with that one that is uh that is definitely going to be something to watch in the future to see whether or not the 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 militancy actually increases you know or at least the aesthetic of militancy 
Yeah, or even even the uh, Uvalde uh, school shooting. Um, there was that one officer who was checking his phone, and he was being mocked online because he was checking his phone, and he had a Punisher uh, logo, Punisher from the comic books. Um, so even the sense that that even the Punisher was becoming uncool, becoming this this uh, sort of sense of staleness and sterility, and just just a gross icon uh of that sort of tactical aesthetic it was on its way out but very much could be coming Mm -hmm. back do you think that we were talking about how telegram is spreading this message well not singular message but how telegram is spreading messages from the far right and how these ideas are reverberating outwards from many different sources many foci what do you what would you suggest or have you observed anything meaningful to counter this if if some if folks might be concerned about how these messages are spreading what would you suggest might be the inoculation or the uh um uh, vaccine <laughs> I was just... for <laughs> for these for these kinds of messages and and their <laughs> proliferation on places like telegram uh, or maybe even like me, we, or the rest of the lot, Gab. Again, if you'd asked if you'd asked me that a uh, couple of weeks back, uh, I, I would have said that there is an intense paranoia um, about uh, federal agents, intelligence agents getting involved in these groups. Everyone's a Fed. Everything is a Fed ops. No one in this sphere can really trust another person to to organise. So. It might just be rhetoric, um, which, again, can radicalise vulnerable individuals in order to to, to commit some atrocities. But for a larger sense of social reordering, if you want, along these values, um, intense paranoia that that the feds are watching and the FBI is watching them. Um, From what we've seen... uh, that playbook has totally gone out the window. Um, I think I think they're aware that the feds are, are watching them, and now people might be ready to start pushing back, um, which is which is massively worrisome. Um, the other strategy that that people tend to enjoy using is what is known as the deficit model, uh, and it's this idea that people who were involved in these in these movements or uh, get into conspiracy theories or just generally pal about in misinformation networks, they are just just simply uh, ignorant of the facts, and and all we need to do is supply them with the correct knowledge, and they will reach a, an enlightened viewpoint. Um, there is. A lot of evidence within the the field of risk communication and risk research that that says no, uh, just simply providing people the right information does nothing to address the underlying socio political concerns. Um, what is generally advocated for with with some degree of, of success is what's known as the dialogic model, um, and it is a sense of being able to at least put forward the underlying articulation, uh, articulate the underlying concerns appropriately, not embracing it, not advocating for it, but saying, do you know what? There are actually a segment of the population. We're not talking about the crazy people. We're not talking about the extreme people. We're talking about the people who are going that way. They have concerns. They have concerns about technology. They have concerns about 5G. You might say, you know, the people who are afraid of 5G is because, you know, it will give them brain cancer or something. 
until you start looking into it and you go, actually, there's a lot of concern that with 5G, it will, it's so powerful that it will enable the, the rapid transmission of information that might bring on predictive policing systems. You know, precognitive policing is something that, that people largely are, are, are concerned about. Um, so it's, it's weeding through the, the conspiracies to find that, that granule of concern and at least represent it might have some uh, within the mainstream media might have some impact on uh, de-radicalizing people, stopping them from needing to go down uh, uh, telegram rabbit holes and things like that. I, I think ultimately those things, it, w- it would be a benefit to us all because those efforts are typically totally futile because they, they end up in, in with concerns that are, you know, that are totally unreasonable, but if they if they took that suspicion or those you know those worries early that were earlier on the the foundation for where they ended up then they you know and it was something like you know the the predictive policing you know that's that's a great thing to to be concerned about because that's absolutely terrifying not because it exists but because the the it would be people running it and that's where we're always going to end up with the same problems. I mean, we, we've we've seen this played out in smaller areas, that exact thing with with, you know, computer determined sentencing in California. And you know what, what you end up finding is that it ends up being incredibly much uh, harsher than actual judges. And that's because for, you know, for the machine based sentencing, there's no people involved. It doesn't have that. You know, that's not part of the, the equation that's factored in. It's just simply the, you know, going by the numbers. And, you know, so those concerns make sense for people to have for sure, because these are things that are entrenched in the real world. But, you know, like you said, they, they start off these incredibly, very human concerns and suspicions about what's about the what's happening in our society and whether or not, you know, we're we're living in a world that is meant to benefit us or it's meant to benefit a, a very small select group of people. Well, well, that's real. That's actually happening. That's that's something that that, mm. that we really do live with, and we are all largely powerless to address in any way whatsoever, other than in conversation. You know, but then you know that turn that that can, with just the right nudging and exposed to the right influences, turn into, you know, we're like return us back to the Jewish cabal. Yeah, uh, and that's that's the thing. There's only. You know, he's like seven degrees of, of Kevin Bacon. There's only so many steps that people can, can go down before it starts getting to the we're now talking about, you know, uh, demonic elites. We're now talking about Jewish cabals. We're now talking about very esoteric things um, that, that are very harmful, um, even even to just have a sort of radicalization of thought, not necessarily leading to action, but just having such a balked framework um, to, to uh, understand and explore explore the world. Um, at the same time, you know, the, the, there are there are people who uh, who, as I said, enjoy watching professional wrestling, knowing that it's fake, knowing that there's there's no real combat going on, and just enjoying the storylines. And you you might have people who enjoy the conspiracy theories just because it's it's you know a wild way to spend a Friday night with a beer and and watching stuff on YouTube. Um, but at what point do people's vulnerabilities also um, also come into play? Um, are there internet users who are more susceptible to, to this messaging? Um, 
And is there, is there any way to deter it? That's that's the difficulty. Because um, I think there is also a, a, a tendency uh, to presume that people view risks in exactly the same way, um, and that's that's not that's not true. Uh, we, we we know from um, there was a 1995 uh, study done in Detroit, and it looked at uh, basically asked people um, to a list of different risks. So things like x-rays to flying in airplanes, to motor vehicles, to street drugs, and asked them to rank uh, how dangerous they saw them. Um, and what, what was noticed was that there was differences along both gender and race lines. Generally, white men tended to view things as being a little bit, or mostly less risky uh, compared to, to, the, to the other demographics. Um, the only bit of convergence, interestingly enough, was both black men and white men viewed motor vehicles as being less dangerous uh, than, than black women and white women. They, they viewed cars as being very, very dangerous. So we know that there are demographic differences at least. So socio-demographic differences in how people view threats to them. Um, how those messages are being amplified, that's the stuff that we're still trying to really unpick at the moment. Um, and the, sadly, my, my, my field has not done a, a good job in advancing the thinking, um, at least until the last two, three years, uh, because a lot of the health and environmental risks were viewed, and, and science and technology risks, were viewed as isolated events. So things like MMR and Fukushima and, and stuff like that, isolated in time and not really linked. Yet at the same time, what we're seeing is people on YouTube uh, and, and in, in Telegram and in these uh, misinformation networks, creating systemic links um, between them. So things like thalidomide back in the 1950s can very easily be resurfaced in a conversation about uh, COVID vaccinations in, in 2020. Um, despite the, the sheer time difference, there is no development that's gone on. There's no... Uh, uh, regulatory changes that have taken place back in the 50s people trusted the doctors and got harmed now people are trusting the doctors and might get harmed um so it is really trying to understand how people make systemic links and and loop everything into this wider socio-political uh, discourse um there has been some work on that the the uh, systemic risk perspective um has has, has come out uh, in recent years but a lot more work needs to be done yeah, aside from the the structural cha or structural differences between a platform like Telegram and you know something like Facebook or or Twitter, I mean, obviously they work slightly differently. I mean, I, I guess you could broadly call Telegram a social network or a social media network, but I mean, it's more of a messaging app than 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 the others are. Do, like, do you do you think that that content moderation is you know is something that that really defines the differences between these two as well, other than the, the obviously the, the way the, the platform functions. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, very much so. It, when you, well, when you, when you say content moderation, it's also the algorithmic presentation of, of the information as well. So you, there's sort of two prongs to that sense of uh, moderation, mm -hmm. if you want. Um, and yeah, people, at least on, in those, um, on, on Telegram that they have got fed up of this sense that the platform itself is dictating the information. Um, and we, and we know that, that, uh, voluntarism and, and a sense of control is very, very, very important to people, um, particularly in regards to, to risk perspectives. So when they are aware that their autonomy, uh, is being stripped away from them, um, 
it upsets people and and they they go searching for new things um and the other the other side of it is that telegram might have this this reputation as being a rebellious uh site to go mm-hmm. on um it's not it's not safe it's not your 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 safety net of twitter or or facebook you can go see some wild stuff there and one of the things i did notice from from my work was that uh there were four months in particular where activity uh, in the network where, where it was highest each year from 2017 onwards each year uh, January, May, July and October always seem to have higher uh, higher activity in the network and so I was wondering why and I, I remember uh, back to, to 4chan and the, the, it was the, the old joke if you want that when the schools were out uh the quality of posting on, on 4chan went downhill which kind of explains <laughs> january july and and may you know especially the, the yeah, american with uh, our school with our yeah with our stuff. school years oh boy but that didn't didn't explain october because right. there's no big break in october and i was really wondering what on earth is happening in october um and it was suggested to me that maybe you know at that time there might be mental health issues going on and so i looked and actually what we see is depression rates are and, and suicide rates are higher in uh december and january which might explain why activity in telegram was higher in that month still didn't explain October. Mm-hmm. But then I did find one article that was looking at activity on legitimate mental health support websites, big list of them. And one thing they noticed was October had a spike in activity. Um, and it dropped down after that. And it just seemed to, to connect. So maybe there is also the sense that you've got this uh Telegram as a rebellious platform, but also there's a sort of proxy mental health service, not saying it's a good one, not saying it's effective, but but people who are struggling with their mental health might be going to Telegram to search for something. Um, what that is, I don't know. Yeah. Well, we've talked in on many occasions, Sean and I, about alienation being such a pivotal factor in many of these uh, folks who are being radicalized, who are going towards uh, far-right extremism, but also other forms of extremism. And that being the underpinning uh, feature. And if you're feeling particularly alienated, and for whatever reason there is that spike in October, that would match up perfectly with exactly who's showing up to get some answers for their sense of... Uh, feeling marginalized for whatever reason. Yeah. And I mean, the, the, the one meme that, that I think really does strike a chord in this sphere is that one that, that sort of says, you know, you will live in the pod, you will eat the bugs, you will own nothing. Uh, you will be a perfect <laughs> economic unit. Uh, you will accept living in a urban multicultural hellscape and you will die alone after you outlive your usefulness. Participation is mandatory. And I, I think there is a, a generation now of, of younger people uh, who definitely do feel that. Um, and there is, you know, you, you might might say that they, there is a sense of entitlement that, to that. But I also think that there's a sense that we are entering a phase now where the traditional expectations of passages of life are being radically stripped away. And 
people don't have the opportunity in reality to go for that. Um, legally, they, they, they can. Legally, you can own a house, um, but you will never work a job that will pay you enough to buy it. Um, so, yeah, there is that, that sense of atomized individualization going on, people searching for answers. And uh, the people who are, who are supplying that answers, at best, are, are Jordan Peterson, but they get a lot worse after that. Yeah, that's, that's, you know that we're in, a, we're in a sorry situation when Jordan Peterson is the most reasonable voice in a crowd. Yep. Well, I'm definitely aware that we have uh, been on this call for a while, Martin. I don't, and I know it's getting late over there. Um, is there, uh, w- would you like to tell everybody where they can find you online? Uh, yep, you can find me on Twitter. That's uh, at Dr. M. Rook, D R M R O K E. Or my Substack is E F T R Thank you so much for being on the show, Martin. Yeah, it's really been an absolute pleasure. Uh, it's been a wonderful chat. Yeah, it's been a great talk. Yeah, sorry if my, my answer started dying off towards the end there. Um, no, 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 it was perfect. No, no, yeah, it, you know, it was absolutely fine. You know, like if anything is going to get cut, it's some of my uh, my more long winded comments in the middle. So, <laughs> no, no, it's a wonderful chat. <laughs> wonderful, yeah. No, thank you very much, gents. It's been um, an absolute pleasure of a conversation. So, uh, anytime. <laughs> All right, excellent. All right, yeah. All right, thanks. Bye bye. Thank you for listening to another episode of Wetwired. If you'd like to support the show and help us stay ad-free and independent, you can find us on patreon.com forward slash wetwired. And if you want to help us even more than that, you can follow us on Twitter and share the show on social. Anything to say? No, that's perfect. All right. Bye, everybody. Bye, everyone. Start by taking you to 2013, the year we founded Telegram, and explain to you a little bit what we set out to build and how we got here. So we started with building a custom lightweight encrypted data protocol in 2013, which allowed to send messages securely over the weakest network connections. And then, for, to do that, we set up a distributed server infrastructure all over the world to uh, make sure that Telegram remains the fastest means of communication uh, everywhere on the planet. So, uh, our secret chats that we launched also in 2013 were an instant hit because they uh, provided end-to-end encryption and self-destruct timers, which was extremely important in the wake of Edward Snowden's revelations. But then we started to build on that. That laid the groundwork for our future development. And in uh, 2014, Telegram started to attract broader audience. 